Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Dr. Mark Milstein specializes in taking the leading science research on brain health and presenting it in a way that entertains, educates, and empowers people to live better. He earned both his PhD in biological chemistry and his Bachelor of Science in molecular, cellular, and developmental biology from UCLA. And today he's here to chat about his new book, the age-proof brain new strategies to improve memory protect immunity and fight off dementia mark welcome thank you thanks for having me so brain health cognitive health becoming a huge part of the conversation for many reasons when you see numbers like one out of three americans who pass away after age 65 will die from some sort of dementia or that dementia and Alzheimer's have increased by a whopping 144% over the last 30 years. Um, This conversation needs to be top of mind, but I want to start with your personal connection here. What what drives you and your passion for, for brain health? Yeah, it's it's a couple of things. One is family members that have suffered from dementia. I had a grandmother um, who, who tragically suffered from Alzheimer's. Uh, also, just seeing other family members aging and wanting to think about what we can do to slow down that process. And then also, just in my own life, um, I've had some some health issues, and they I, they've been inflammatory issues, some gut issues, and understanding that that has impacted my brain health as well. And that but when I can get things and I've been able to get things under control and managed, that's helped my ability to focus and be productive. And and so realizing how connected this all is and and realizing that we want to start thinking about these things, you know, early on, um, the the time to take action is, is really now, no matter what age you are. Um, and so that realizing that, that we're at a point where we can take the research and we can distill it down into little actionable steps. And I think that's also what really drives me is that we have there's things that we can do. I want to get this information out to people so that they can take actions as well. So there are a lot of things we can do. And you mentioned, you know, as we age, but our biological age may not be the age of our brain. And so something you talk about in the book, how can we get a sense of how old our brain is? Let's start there. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very true that we can disconnect how many years we've been on this planet from how old our brain really is. And our brain can be older or younger than our actual age. And really what we realize is that making your brain younger is really one of the most powerful things you can do to lower your risk for a wide range of cognitive issues. And we can do it. And so something, you know, we could all go to jump in a brain scanner, that would give us some information, but we really don't all need to do that now. You know, in some cases that's that's understandable, but we can just ask ourselves these questions. So I've, I've actually broken it down into the word brain. If you just think about these five questions, B is for balance. How's your balance? You know, as we get older, we can lose sight of um, yoga, dancing, movement, and our brain is controlling those things and they're use it or lose it skills. So we want to realize that we want to, you know, check in with yourself. How's your balance? If, if, if there's some issues there, you know, we want to think about things that we can do to improve balance. Um, we also realize that R is for recall. So, you know, we live in a world where everything's on our phone. What was that actor, actress's name? What was that person on that sports scene? You know, just taking a moment and saying, I'm going to do a trivia night. I'm going to take my grocery list. I'm going to turn it over. I'm going to try to recall information and practice that skill as well. Um, A is for just sort of assessing 
how you're getting through the day? Are, are you struggling? Are you forgetting appointments? Or are you, are you having trouble, you know, remembering to pay a bill? Um, I is for intensity, <laughs> intensity of walking. We realize that we have all these studies now that show that walking is the simple act of walking is so important for brain health, but the speed at which you walk matters. People who walk with a little bit of push to their walk, a little bit of speed, have younger looking brains. You don't have to go power walking all, all everywhere you go, but just think about a little bit of an extra effort there can go a long way. Um, and then N is uh, for really just thinking about your number. And what I mean by that is how old do you feel? What's your actual number that you feel your age is? There's been all these fascinating studies that show that people who say, I feel younger than my actual age, you scan their brain and their brain looks younger, probably because they're doing more youthful activities. So there's an element of perspective here of just saying, you know, I want to feel more youthful and that can impact how my brain is aging as well. I love it. All very practical. Yeah. And so you're touching on lifestyle in a big way. And, you know, I love how you summarize it with brain. These are things that anyone can do uh, to get to get a baseline assessment of how they're doing. And, you know, I, I want to stay on lifestyle because I think it's so powerful. And, you know, I think of these buckets, if you will. So the lifestyle buckets, you know, you've got sleep, you've got stress, you've got nutrition, exercise, social connection and, and environment. And so let's start with sleep. You know, we all know sleep is critical. Uh, I, I think we all know that eight hours is a little bit of a myth. It's not about necessarily the, the quantity of hours. It's about the quality and are you getting enough deep and, and REM sleep. But can you walk us through why sleep is so critical from a brain health perspective? What's going on in the brain when, when we're getting that deep and REM sleep? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I, one of the my favorite things to talk about is what's happening when you're just just at the end of your deep sleep cycle, which is your brain inside your skull shrinks down to about 65% of its current size. And I know that sounds like a horror movie. Wow. <laughs> but what's happening there is that just living, just being part of your part of your daily life is that your brain has all these chemical reactions with uh, byproducts, waste, trash, toxins, and your three pound brain makes about five pounds of this waste a year, and you have to get rid of it. So every night when you're at the end of your deep sleep cycle, think of your brain like a sponge, you're squeezing this garbage or waste, the trash, this, these byproducts that build up, you're squeezing it out of your brain into this empty space that you create, then fluid comes up from your spinal cord and washes all this waste away, and you get rid of it. And so every single night, you're giving your brain a brainwash. And so if you just think about your home or your apartment, if it's filling up with waste or trash or garbage, it's hard to focus, it's hard to be productive. And the buildup of this waste day to day and over time, if we don't essentially get rid of it and clean our brain, can impact our ability to think and remember and focus. So really, I think one of the most powerful things is just thinking about your sleep as this is my brainwash time. This is my time to clean my brain. And I I, I need to do this because a clean brain is a youthful brain. Um, and so that's why sleep is critically important, among many other reasons, but something that's, you know, I think we can really just hang on to that idea. I just can't help but think about the five pounds of waste a year. That's pretty significant. If you talk about a brain that's three pounds, yeah. five pounds of waste a year. Yeah. It's what the lot. hell is in the waste? <laughs> it's just like, you know, you think about what your brain is doing, all the chemical reactions, all the byproducts. I mean, you're talking about, you know, 80 billion brain cells 
each of them producing waste. Um, so it adds up. <laughs> wow. So we'll move on to the next big one, stress. And, and we know that a little stress, you know, hormetic stressors like sauna, cold plunge, high intensity interval training, you know, we'll segue to exercise. Uh, we, we know that those little stressors, all good, but what about, the, you know, too much stress? What, what, what goes on in the brain when we're just maxed out on stress? Yeah, that's, that's exactly true is that we want to embrace some stress um, whether it is us putting some stress on our body through exercise or, or other, you know, temperature, things like that. But the idea is, is that a burst is okay, even if it's in our day-to-day -day life, you know, think challenges we want to get done, things we want to tackle, but too much stress, that same chemical cortisol, which in a burst is actually really good for your brain. And there's a part of your brain called the hippocampus, which is involved in memory and a little bit of, of stress makes that part of the brain actually bigger, stronger. So I like to think of it like a car. If you don't drive it and you leave it in the garage, it falls apart. And if you overdrive it, it breaks down. So a little bit of stress, quite good, but too much stress actually causes the hippocampus or this essential part of our memory part of our brain to shrink. And that can have a really negative impact, not only on memory, but we see in cases of depression, we see this, the, the hippocampus is shrinking. And that has a, a, you know, a significant impact on our ability to get out of depression. Because when we want to get out of depression, we need to learn part of that is learning new lifestyle habits. And that can be a, a devastating cycle, a vicious cycle where it's difficult to learn new things because we're, our brain is, is impacted in this way. So in terms of depression, in terms of cognitive decline, we want to think about how stress can damage the memory center of the brain. And, and we want to keep that stress to something we can take a break from. Because if we can take a break from it, all of a sudden we can shift that balance to something that can be positive for the brain instead of something that is, is quite negative. Well, also, if you're too stressed and maybe you're anxious or depressed, odds are you're probably not sleeping well, you're not eating right, you're not exercising, you're not having meaningful social connection. So it kind of dovetails into everything. It's a vicious cycle. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, these things are all very much connected. And so you touched on exercise. You talked about the fast-paced walk. And it's a question I like to ask a lot. How, how much exercise do we really need? And, and let's talk about low intensity versus high intensity, you know, cardio, weight training, you, know, you mentioned the, 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 the light walk with the fast paced walk. Let's just spend a couple minutes on exercise as it relates to brain health and what the science says. This is what we know. Exercise in any form is pretty good for your brain. If you're overdoing it and you're exhausted and you're causing, you know, inflammatory effects, that can be dangerous, that can be too much. But the threshold where we see a lot of protection for brain health is about 18 to 20 minutes a day of getting your heart rate up most days a week. So really what we wanna get the word out is that it's, it's not that much in terms of where we see a lot of protection. Past that, you know, high intensity interval training can be really good for the brain as long as we're not overdoing it. It's a mix of things, you know, it, and what we realize is that people who walk about 30 minutes a day lower the risk of dementia by about 60%. So we realized that that's, that's profound. And, and we realized that walking is critically important, giving a little bit of an extra push. The study found that it didn't have to all be done at the same time. Just getting 30 minutes of walking in a day has this really powerful impact. Um, beyond that, we see that people who take stairs <laughs> over escalators and elevators have a younger looking brain. So it, if, you, if you enjoy going to the gym, that's great. But we can also find ways to integrate 
exercise into our daily life, like, you know, park a little bit farther from your errand or stop, uh, get, get off on the bus and stop early or, you know, call a friend and walk with your friend, take a morning walk. All these little things can add up. And, you know, studies keep coming out that say, you oh, know, this is the best exercise. That's the best exercise. But if somebody is looking to just get started, we just want to say that just simply walking is really important for your brain health. And it's a, it's a, it's, it doesn't cost a thing. <laughs> it's easy to get started um, and something that we can really integrate in our, day, in our daily life. I love that you mentioned the stairs. To me, this taking the stairs is one of the most underrated ways to get fit. It, you know, if you think about, okay, one, I'm working on my, my leg strength. Two, you're probably going to be slightly out of breath if you're going at a fast pace. You're going to get your heart rate up. You're going to enter what you know, biohackers will call zone two, which is what you are going to be. And then three, most people are faced with an elevator or stairs on a daily basis. I don't know what, I don't know what, what, the, what the data suggests, what percentage of the population, but my guess is a lot of people are faced with that choice. So you have to, you have to go anyway. So do you take a couple extra minutes? And it's something you don't have to go to the gym. You don't have to set aside time to do it. I think the problem so many people have with, with exercise is time. I don't have the time. So, but if you have to get somewhere and I, I got a choice in front of me, do I take the, the elevator or, you know, the escalator if I'm traveling at an airport or I'm at a shopping mall, just take the stairs. You're going anyway. Yeah, exactly. One of my favorite pictures, and I showed in some of my talks is people taking the escalator over the stairs to the gym. <laughs> so it's like, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I've seen like, you know, people take the, ele- when the, when the gym is on the second floor and they take the elevator, I'm like, what are you, what are right, you doing? Right. Yeah, yeah. I've done it. I've done it myself, but I always remind myself, wait, 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 wait. I can't fall into that trap. I've got to, I've got to yeah. take the stairs. <laughs> so the next one is a big one, nutrition. Yeah. You know, all, all the brain health docs and experts love foods rich in EPA and DPA. You're omega-3 fatty fish. Not not surprising. What what, what else is on your list of the best brain health foods? It's a variety of things. So, you know, when people start talking about it's the one superfood. We actually have data that suggests it's a it's a mix. It's the synergy. And so I like to always just think, I always like to break it down simply because diets get so complicated so quickly. Yes. <laughs> so quickly. And, and, and they can be hard to follow. So a really good place to start, just like walking is a good place to start, just looking at your plate and seeing a rainbow that's not Skittles, <laughs> but more like uh, fruits and vegetables, different colors at most meals, like a handful there's a, an, a really interesting study that found that when people have the variety of the colors, those colors have chemicals that interact in a positive way uh, in our gut, in our brain, and can be very helpful. So just thinking about having that intermix of fruits, vegetables, healthy fibers, uh, you know, you mentioned the salmon is great too, nuts, berries, all those things are, are, are excellent for our brain health. But a really good place to start is colorful fruits and vegetables, most meals on your plate, and just stay away from the ultra processed stuff, the stuff where you're like, I can't pronounce this. This looks like a chemical experiment gone wrong, chemistry experiment gone wrong. You know, whole natural foods most of the time can get you a really long way without going down rabbit holes of of very complex diets that are hard to follow. And and what's your take specifically on grains? Because many brain health docs are, you know, some of (laughs) very strong opinions. Some say completely eliminate it, which I, I get if you're you're dealing with autoimmune, uh, and others say no, no, no. You know, 
Grain, grains are okay if you don't have a problem. What, what's your two cents on grains? I look at the research and, I, and what I see is that it's what you said. If somebody has an autoimmune condition, uh, sensitivity to gluten, for example, then they want to stay away from grains. Uh, that definitely can be an inflammatory uh, event for some people. Um, but the, the, there's a bit of a marketing push behind everybody eliminating grains because grains, uh, for a significant portion of the population, provide fiber. And fiber is something that in your gut feeds good bacteria and can be anti-inflammatory and can be very beneficial for brain health. So, you know, there is an individualized aspect of this. And if people have a sensitivity to it, that's something to eliminate. But if they don't, healthy fibers, healthy grains as in the form of, of healthy fibers can be beneficial for gut and brain health. You know, with, with grains specifically, I, I think you'll you'll know if you have an issue. For me, me, I don't like to have a lot of them, uh, but I don't believe in eliminating food groups. Yeah, yeah. And so with that said, you know, you, you started off by saying you dealt with some, some gut issues. Let, let's spend a moment on the gut-brain axis. What's so interesting to you about the gut-brain brain axis? To me, it's fascinating. It, it is. It is. It is. It's really mind-blowing to think about this connection that what is happening down in our gut is impacting how we're feeling, impacting our mood. So we think of it like a two-way street. And, and the way we always thought about it was, you know, you could be nervous, for example, you're anxious, and then your stomach feels off. But now we realize that your stomach can be off, and that's sending signals to your brain that can make you feel anxious or can make you feel off in your mood. And it's really fascinating. I mean, we could go on and on and on, but there was a study that came out a couple of days ago that highlighted something that I always like to think about, which is that the types of bacteria in your gut can be releasing essentially chemicals that travel to your brain that make you crave certain foods. So, you know, people who really like chocolate, for example, they have certain combinations of bacteria that are saying, go get me some chocolate, or the study that just came out was about high fat foods. So it, it really is interesting that what's happening down in our gut can be driving, you know, it's not, it's not the sole the decision maker for us, of course, but it plays a role in aspects of how we're thinking, how we're feeling, and also just our general brain health. We, we realize that we can have inflammation that starts in the gut, can get into the bloodstream, and it ends up in the brain. And we're realizing that conditions like Alzheimer's, I mean, we're starting to move the, the model that Alzheimer's is much more of an autoimmune inflammatory condition than we ever thought. And we believe some of that inflammation might be starting in the gut and making its way to the brain. So it's hopeful because we can treat the gut and we can balance it and make it healthy. And that can be part of the complex puzzle to keep our brain healthy. So I, I'm going to spend a little time on this study. I think it's interesting. So what you're saying is people had specific bacteria in their gut that caused them to crave high fat foods. So is that a byproduct of them eating so many high fat foods or they were just predisposed? Because, and I'm curious, what do you do with them next? You remove the high fat foods, change the microbiome, crave something else. So you're hitting on what is the next question of that study? What they're trying to figure out is, is this a chicken or an egg situation? Because the microbiome can be altered based upon what we eat. Um, and so it is possible that part of what's happening here is that when you feed the gut certain foods, certain bacteria grow and they crave more of that food. Um, so the idea is, is that if we can, you know, alter the diet, which we believe is one of the most powerful ways in which we can have some shifts in our microbiome and our gut bacteria, that that might alter what we're craving. And it might take, you know, it might not happen overnight and those sh these shifts don't happen immediately, um, but they, that might be helpful in people understanding and, and moving forward with helping with craving. It's just thinking about, you know, if I could just stick to 
um, this type of diet and, 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 and get that habit down, that might alter down the road what I'm craving. And also, we all know that diversity of food plays a huge role, healthy microbiome. Yeah, absolutely. Touching on the microbiome, you know, there, there's a microbiome in our gut, the food we eat, but also the environment we're in. The, the, there's a direct connection. Where, where are we living? <laughs> that, that, that there is a connection to our environment with the microbiome. You know, the, the, the air we breathe, pollution, plastics, the list goes on. What role does the environment play, in your opinion, with regards to brain health? I think this is the next frontier. This is the next thing that we're going to be really starting to talk about, that the health of the planet is related to the health of our brain. And we see studies where people who live in environments where there's higher levels of pollution, they have higher rates of cognitive loss or dementia. And it's not that surprising because your nose is a direct route to your brain. It, you don't have to go too far up your nose and you're eventually you're going to hit your brain. And the things that we're breathing in are impacting our brain health. And the things that we're eating are impacting our gut health. So, you know, we're starting to realize that taking care of this planet, taking care of our environment is not just about the environment. You know, there is an L, it's directly related to these issues that we need to talk about as well. So it, it's really, I, I believe, the next frontier. That's why I included a chapter of it uh, in the book um, to say that it's not just what's happening, what's within it's happening externally too. When I think about what's happening externally, and, I, and this is one I, I just do not think we talk enough about the power of real world, meaningful social connection. What role in your opinion does that play? A, a huge, a huge role. Uh, something exactly what you said is it's not talked about enough. And now based on what's happened the last couple of years with isolation and loneliness, it, it's not the number of people that you're around, you know, people can be surrounded by people and they can feel lonely or they can be by themselves and not feel lonely. But it's do you feel isolated? Do you feel disconnected? And we see this evidence that people who feel feelings of isolation or disconnected, it can change how their immune system functions. And isolation has this this impact on the immune system. It can make it go haywire, make it overreact, cause inflammation. And we go back to the previous conversation that in the inflammatory events can impact our brain health. So we realize again that how we're feeling emotionally and realizing that this is something we need to talk about and take care of. You know, over the last couple of years, we've seen the rates of depression go up significantly, the rates of anxiety. And we realize that's not only important for our day-to-day -day wellness, but we also starting to bridge the gap or bridge our understanding, I should say, in realizing that individuals who have untreated depression, untreated anxiety, multiple factors involved, but feelings of isolation are a piece of that complex puzzle. Untreated depression, untreated anxiety, over time, those individuals develop dementia or cognitive loss earlier than people that don't have those conditions. So really, our, our mental health today impacts our brain health down the road. And one of those aspects of many things, of multiple things, is the feelings of isolation. So we just we covered a lot of ground in terms of lifestyle. We talked about diet, exercise, sleep, stress, environment, connection, and of everything we just talked about. If you had to pick, say, three things that anyone could do tomorrow to incorporate into their everyday to up-level up their brain health, what, what would you pick? What would be at the top of your list? Um, so I like to say, get a morning walk-in. And, and the reason why that's so important is it hits a lot of things on the list. Being outside, a little bit of nature, a little bit, bit of green time, we've seen lower stress levels. We also realize that getting some morning light can help you sleep at night. There's some fascinating brain science there as well. 
So that morning walk and also the, the walking itself is good for your brain. Now, I like to say, how can we combine that with something else so that we're getting two things for, for one event? So you really kind of have a good choice there. One is if you're feeling isolated and that's something to, to not be afraid of that feeling, just say, oh, I'm having that feeling. I want to take some action and address that. And if you're feeling isolated, maybe walk with a friend or call a friend and make that time to connect with people. If you're like, you know what? I need a break. <laughs> I need a break from people. Use that as a time to listen to your favorite podcast, some music, or just enjoy the quiet and have a mindful moment. So right there, you have the walk can, can, can add up to two things, either you know a connection moment or a moment to detach or break away, turn your phone off and have a, have a, have a mindful, peaceful moment. We see that people who just kind of have a mindful moment in the morning tend to have less burnout later in the day. And then the third thing I would say is just think about that handful of things on your plate. You know, just, just right before you eat, just most of the time ask this question. Can I pronounce the ingredients of the things I'm about to eat? <laughs> if I can't pronounce them, minimize them and throw on colorful fruits and vegetables. Just with those three things, they can take you a, a long way. And they're, they're, it's a low barrier of entry and things that, that you know we can do that can have a profound impact. Yeah, I, I want to come back to the first one for a moment because I think it's so critical getting a walk in in the morning, getting some sunshine. And I feel like I'm the only person freaking out about this, but they're making daylight savings permanent. And this is going to be very bad for most of the country. It's going to be dark. Like it's going to be bad for most children who go to school at you know 8 a.m. or so it's going to 7 8 it's going to be dark and I, I think it passed the senate i think it has to pass the house to be permanent but this is bad <laughs> right we need daylight we need morning light and it's 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 a it's a very good point that we need to find ways to um that morning light is 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 important uh, you know i go in the book all about this part of your this part of your brain called the brain clock and that morning light regulates that system that helps with your mood, your focus, your attention, metabolism, and sleep. So in general, you know, we want to make sure there's time in the morning for morning light. We don't want to jump into a car or just, you know, step by our, 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 our phone or our computer. A little bit of outside time goes a long way. And these are, it's, I think it's, it's what you're bringing up is that the government plays a role in making big decisions that can impact you know, our, our wellness and our health and, and having that and making brain health part of the, the, these conversations is important. Tell me about it. I think, <laughs> I think we've gotten a lot wrong. And I think, you know, I, look, I, I think without going down the rabbit hole of government, I, I think sometimes people are well-intentioned, but uneducated. And I, I am as parents of young kids and, and, and seeing the value seeing the, the science behind the value of sunlight in the morning, I, I'm concerned about this. Hopefully I, I'm wrong and it doesn't pass, but I don't think it's good. So you know, you touched on the parts of the brain. So I want to spend a moment there, come back to that. So so can you walk us through, you know, this this three pound noggin and walk us through the different parts from the frontal lobe to the cerebellum, all the different parts. Walk us through like what do they do? I like to break it down a little bit more than that and break it down, talk about a couple key parts that I think, you know, it, let's talk about three things, specific parts of the brain. We talked about the hippocampus and that's your, your short-term memory 
And that's the part of the brain that can really atrophy as we age, it can shrink and can impact uh, memory formation. So the idea is, is that like, I'm gonna give a quick tip for each part of the brain. <laughs> so when it comes to the hippocampus, we realize that we're living in a world where we're onto the next, onto the next, onto the next. And it's like, you know, where did I put my keys? Where did I park my car? Um, what was I just doing? We realize that our initial ability to remember something is based upon the hippocampus's ability to hold on to the information for about seven to 10 seconds. That lets our brain know that this information is important. And if it's not important, our brain throws it away essentially. And so we live in a world again, where we're multitasking, we're doing so many things at once and we're, we're trying to figure out why are we having these memory lapses? You know, why, why can't I remember where I parked my car or put my keys or what I was just doing a second ago? And just taking a moment and saying, was I focusing on what I needed to focus on to remember it for about 10 seconds? And slowing down and just saying, I need to focus on this information for about 10 seconds, people are surprised what they remember. So for example, if you meet somebody, you wanna remember their name and you don't want their name to just disappear into thin air, imagine writing their name on their forehead, right? after they say their name, because you focus on their name for an extra few seconds, your brain goes, oh, this information is worth it. Instead of throwing it away, it transfers it to long-term memory. So a little tip really is slowing down in the moments where you say, I need to remember this information. That's your hippocampus. It's the, it's the waiting room. It's the filtering part of the brain. Second part of the brain I wanna talk about is in the frontal lobe, and it's the prefrontal cortex. This is your ability to control your emotions. And there's nothing wrong with emotions, of course, but we wanna make sure that we have the ability if it's stress or anxiety to at least put the brakes. And this is the part of the brain that we're not born with it being very strong, but we can work it out and exercise it so that we can essentially apply the brakes and calm ourselves down in moments when we need to calm down. And the way that we do that is we have these really fascinating studies that mindfulness, focusing on your breathing, is making this part of the brain stronger. So the idea is, is that we wanna take some time throughout the day and have some moments where we just singularly focus on maybe a breathing exercise, but mindfulness can just be an activity that you enjoy that puts you in the present moment because that makes that part of the brain bigger and stronger. Um, and that can be helpful also with willpower and other things <laughs> throughout and decision-making. And it's a part of the brain that drains. It's like a, a cell phone battery. As the day goes on, it gets weaker. So we wanna do things to make that part of the brain strong. And the last thing that I'll mention uh, in, in just a specific part of the brain is your amygdala. And of course, the brain's interacting in multiple ways. So there's, you know, when we talk about decision-making, it's more than just one part of the brain or memory, it's multiple parts, but these are things that we can just, you know, kind of hang on to. The amygdala is the emotional part of the brain. And if we have reactive emotions, so for example, you know, anger, there's nothing wrong with being angry. It's important, it's good. We just don't want it too much, too often, all the time or out of control. Well, the amygdala is the part of the brain that controls emotion. It's where it emanates from, I should say. That's where the emotions emanate from. And we also have studies that we can really make this part of the brain less reactive. And a simple thing is that when your amygdala gets active, it sends a bunch of signals for you to react, but it doesn't keep reacting. It, it, it sends a signal and then it kind of takes a momentary break so if you've ever heard the, the old folks, the advice of count to 10, <laughs> count to 10 and take some deep breaths, that gives the chance for your amygdala or your emotional or your anger or your anxiety part of the brain to just take a moment and calm down a little. It might not be the answer to all of these issues, but it gives us a chance to say, wait a second, before I send that email, before I send that, say that thing that I might regret, that simple advice of take 10 deep breaths, count to 10, 
allows the prefrontal cortex to catch up and be like, wait a second, maybe this isn't the right thing to say or do in this moment. So wanted to give you three specifics there for, for parts of the brain. And can you talk a little bit about when does the brain fully develop? It's, it's after we're done growing. I think it's age 25 or so. Am I right? Yeah. For, for, there's some evidence that for women, it's about 25. And for men, it might be even a few years later. Um, so it, it takes time. And the prefrontal cortex, you know, that's why teenagers struggle with decision making or, or making, you know, we say, how did they make, how did a teenager make that decision? Well, the prefrontal cortex is still evolving, still growing, still becoming more dynamic and learning. So um, there's an evolution to the brain. There's an evolving process within our lifetime. And, and then it, it still, it, it, it reaches this essential final structure, but we can still change, grow, and of course, learn new things and have new perspectives for the rest of our life. So I'm going to go a little off track here, but it, it's something I think is emerging and uh, I'm passionate about. And so, you know, you've got kids, teens, college, they experiment, they drink, they do drugs. Specifically where I'm going is cannabis and marijuana is essentially becoming legal everywhere. Uh, and a lot of the studies I've seen and many of the experts I trust are raising their hands and saying, this isn't a good thing. The data is not good when you look at the developing brain, if you are vulnerable to schizophrenia, uh, psychosis, depression, it's just, you're, you're, and you don't know. You're rolling the dice. And to me, this is something that is not talked about enough. So I'm going to pause there. What's what's your take? That's what the data is showing us, is that while the brain is still developing, these chemicals, the uh, you know drugs, alcohol, have an impact on brain development. And there are underlying conditions based upon environment and genetic and other things we just don't understand that can be predisposed that in the presence of these outside chemicals can raise the risk significantly. And so just, you know, we need to make that part of the conversation. We need to be able to say that these things are not entirely safe. They're not, there's not, there's not without risk. And, you know, I have um, just a, just a personal moment here. I have a daughter that just entered high school and I was surprised when she went to what I thought was a casual birthday party and very young kids, some of them were drinking alcohol. I couldn't believe it. I mean, I, I can't believe, I, I know I, maybe I'm naive. But when I had the conversation with my daughter, I took the angle of your brain's developing, you know, and, and, and that she didn't partake. But I want her to be aware that, you know, until until your brain has developed, you want to really be careful because once the brain is 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 done developing the things that happen in those years, they can be harder to undo. They can be harder to change. And, and it's it's a time period where we want to be careful. We want to protect the precious brain. So having that that conversation saying that, you know, we want to be aware that this can have a negative impact at these ages. Um, and it's not about being, you know, cool or, or, or being or having fun. It's about what are you what what might you have to live with for the rest of your life or struggle with, or, or have as, as a burden, or something difficult based upon, uh, you know, choices that are made early on. Yeah, not condoning teens drinking or alcohol in general, I think alcohol can lead to all sorts of bad things. Uh, and my word of advice, if you, if you don't drink, don't start. But I, I think to me, what's so concerning about marijuana specifically is when you talk about schizophrenia, psychosis, these are serious mental health disorders. Alcohol's not, alcohol can do a lot of damage, but it's not going to lead you to, to schizophrenia. 
if it runs in your family. It could lead to lots of other things. Um, but it, and it seems that many in the wellness world have kind of gave it a pass and that I find to be upsetting. Yeah, no, I understand. I think that the thing from a brain science perspective, we also have to realize that there are hundreds of chemicals involved in marijuana. We know a little bit about two of them, THC and CBD. The rest of them, we don't know. There, there's a dire need for, for real research here so that we can understand uh, its implications. And, and as you said, not just give it a pass as something that is, um, you know, th there, are, there are situations where it can possibly use for beneficial purposes, but to say that it is because it is natural to say for everyone is something we want to steer away from. 100% agree, but I'll get off the topic and, and I'll put that in the bucket of my next question of, are there things that we perceive to be healthy that, that we may be doing, which actually aren't good for our brain health? Yeah, that's a really good question. One thing is to, to, to work and work and work and work and not take a break. I mean, that, that's a constant issue, I think, is to think that it's all about, you know, never, you know, th there's the mindset of don't take a vacation and, and don't uh, and, and always be thinking about goals and, and the next thing you need to do. Those things are great, but we can be burning ourselves out. And so that's one thing to think about. Um, the other thing to be aware of is that turning to too many supplements is something we want to be concerned about. Um, supplements can be used under the right circumstances for the right individuals. But this idea that there's a magic pill or, or that there's a magic supplement or that the more the better when it comes to supplements is something we wanna be very, very careful with. And also just things that are involved with, you know, a lot of marketing and a little bit of science. I, I think that's a main point of this book is that we're really seeing practical, simple, uh, a lot of these things are common sense, but they're things we can easily forget as opposed to turning to some sort of magical solution, um, which you know we don't have. A lot of things are advertised on television. You know, I always like to tell the story about you know the pills advertised during the commercials that were told help our memory. Somebody came up to me and said to me, "I'm taking that pill." I said, "What's the name of the pill?" The person said, "I don't remember." So <laughs> that sums up. Sad. Yeah. <laughs> so you know, in terms of memory, you just the person doesn't remember. Can you walk us through the different types of memory to, to better understand how they work? How can we be better at you know short term versus long term versus everything else? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, at a at a essence of what's happening is when you learn something new, which is one of the best things you can do for your brain because you're forcing those eighty billion brain cells to make a new connection, and the moment you make the connection is the moment you learn it. But then when you sleep at night you make that connection stronger and stick. That's another reason why sleep is so important. So individuals who don't get a good night's sleep, they don't remember the things they learned that day nearly as well. But the idea of why we make certain connections, why some stick and why some don't stick, we have some insights there. So one thing we realize is that if the, if the thing that we're learning has meaning, if it has some emotional element to it, it's funny, it's scary, <laughs> uh, it's more likely to stick. That's just evolutionarily uh, programmed in our brain that we're, we're programmed to remember things that have real meaning as opposed to just some random string of numbers that's a password that you're like, why am I constantly hitting password reset? You know, don't feel bad about those things. Those things are harder to remember. 
So something that's simple and actionable is to think about when you want to remember something is make it funny, make it silly. If you want to make it a little bit scary, that's fine too. Just not, you know, not too scary. But that's the way to make those memories stick. The other thing to be aware of is that information is constantly filtered out. We are, there, we're, there's so much happening, so many things that we're seeing and hearing and experiencing that your brain doesn't want to fill up with useless information. So in order for that actual connection to actually take place and solidify even initially, that's when we get back to that hippocampus. That's our short-term memory. So people think short-term memory is, you know, what I ate for lunch yesterday or that person I met on the street. Your short-term memory is really about seven to 10 seconds. And that's when your brain decides, is this information worth it? If it's worth it, it leaves the hippocampus, that, that waiting room, and it goes to long-term memory. If it's not worth it, your brain essentially throws it away. So last big key point on this is that where does that information go once it's stored? Well, it's stored all throughout your brain. It's not just in one or two connections somewhere. So for example, if you, if you meet somebody new, the way they look is stored in the visual part of your brain. The way they sound is stored in the auditory part of your brain. The way they might smell is stored in the, the, the olfactory, the sensory part of your brain. How you feel towards that person is, is stored in the, in the amygdala. So when you want to remember something, make it more of a story. Make it dimensional. You meet somebody and their name is Henry. Oh, they're like King Henry. They're from England. I'm in a pub. That pub smells a certain way. I can hear the music. And that causes your brain to make those connections all throughout the brain. And I like to think it's like a squirrel hiding nuts for the winter. The more places you put the memory, the more likely you are to remember it. That's why we love stories. We love making things. We, we remember things that have more of a meaning or more dimensions to them, as opposed to just, you know, singular information like a random number or someone's name without some backing to it. These things are mostly forgotten. So on a, on a personal note, I remember faces. You know, to, and I don't try, it just happens. You know, the, the other week we went out to dinner in Miami. We just moved here recently. And I said to the waiter, I said, you used to work at Siggy's in Brooklyn Heights. And he said, oh my God, yes, I, I recognize you. And he recognizes me. I'm also six foot seven, you know, we used to go there all the time. And this was like six years ago. And my wife is just looking at me like, what's wrong with you? Like, and I didn't choose to remember this guy. I just did. Uh, so what's going on? I, I feel like in my, what, what part of my brain or what, what I feel like I almost have a, I don't have a photographic memory with faces, but there's something about me where I randomly remembered a waiter from six years ago, really nice guy. We went to that restaurant a lot uh, in, in Brooklyn when we lived there. So like what's going on in my brain that I was able to do that? Yeah, I mean, it's like any skill or talent. Some people are better at facial recognition and it runs along a spectrum where there's actually some people who have what we call facial blindness. They have a very hard time recognizing faces. Somebody who's famous, who's come out. Shut close. Yeah, and uh, Brad Pitt has said that he has a very hard time recognizing people's faces. Um, wow. So, so the idea is, is that, you know, some people are very good at this. We have some understanding about certain parts of the brain are involved in recognizing facial structures and how that works, but it's still quite mysterious in terms of what we understand. Most people recognize faces more than names. And if you think about it evolutionarily, that makes sense that it, it's much more important to say, is that person my friend or my enemy, as opposed to being like, oh, that's Evan, <laughs> that's Joe. Well, I, I what I'm also fascinated by is selective memory. Yeah. Yeah. 
you know, this idea that I, I'm choosing what to remember. Yeah. And I think those who do it well, it's such a gift. I, I can I can choose. I'm choosing to remember things that I deem to be important. And I am choosing to discard things that aren't of value, whether it's to my mental health or whatever I'm looking to achieve. Um, I, I, I'll give the example. Um, one of our investors is in his mid-70s. And if you provided a number three months ago, and if, if that number was related to finances, that number is engraved in his head. And he is so sharp with numbers, doesn't forget a number. You say, this is what we we're going to do. He, <laughs> he not, he's not forgetting that number. Other things less important, no, no memory. But they're, they're, but they're not important to him at all. And to me, I look at him and I said, well, th I think that's, that's part of his secret sauce, why he's so sharp in his mid-70s. Uh, he chooses what is important to him and he, it's like a, he's a steel trap, other things, whether they're people, other things he deems to be superfluous, doesn't remember anything. I think it's amazing. <laughs> it's incredible. And I, I think it is a part of the secret sauce of success. Um, I was, I'm a big baseball fan and I find a lot of brain science in baseball. And uh, yesterday I was listening to an interview with uh, Josh Hader, who's a pitcher and he was, he had, he was one of the best pitchers and he was playing really bad a few months ago. And people were saying he's over, he's done, he's broken. And they, and he came back and now he's pitching great again. And they said to him, how did you do it? And he said, I have a, I have a short, I, I, I flush memories. I don't hold on to the bad memories. And I, I, I have a very short term memory, you know, and the, I, I think that's really powerful is that, you know, as a fan, the fans can fixate and say he had a bad game and they're talking about it for days. Whereas he said the bad game, he lets go of it and he's on to the process of how he's going to be better instead of focusing on the bad result. And if you just think about that in life, there's a lot there. <laughs> there's a lot there that what can we flush and what can we focus on? And so building off of that, you know, the, the example I use, this is just in, in the world of business. You know, the, the, the stakes maybe aren't high in terms of health and wellness. Uh, but as I think about trauma, a lot of trauma in the world, big T and little t, how can we, and, and it builds up and it, and it catches you. And I, I think we all have trauma, whether we know it or not, it's there. No one is immune. And so do you have any advice or how do you think about that of discarding the stuff the stuff, I'll just call it the stuff that's there that doesn't necessarily serve our brain health. And how do we go about doing that? Yeah, that, that's an important point. And I, I, you know, the last couple of years, taking a step back and saying, it would be hard not to have experienced some trauma from whether whatever side you're on, there would be some trauma based upon, you know, the pandemic. Uh, and then of course, there's much, uh, much more significant trauma within the pandemic, with outside of the pandemic, um, for some individuals. Thinking about it this way, I think the first step when it comes to anything related to brain science is awareness, is starting to have the conversation to say that we have to be aware that if we just push some things to the side, that they manifest later in much bigger or much more deviant or much more uh, you know, significant problems. So saying, you know, first thing is the awareness that there's things that have happened. It's difficult to live a life and not have some sort of trauma on some level and saying that, okay, my first thing is the awareness of it. The second thing is, I think what you said is that 
how in some cases, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy, talking about it is important, destigmatizing that. And I think that's happening now is that it's important to, to communicate and talk about it and work through it with a professional. And just from a brain science perspective, traumatic memories are brain connections. And when we talk about something or we revisit any memory, the moment we talk about it, we actually unhook the memory for a moment and we put it back together. And we can put it back together stronger or we can put it back together in a different way. So fundamentally, when we revisit things, if we do it in a certain way with a certain perspective with the right people, we can disconnect memories that are traumatic and reconnect them in a way that might be easier to move on from. And this is not easy. It doesn't happen overnight. But what we see is that our brain is malleable, it's changeable. Our memory isn't perfect. That's why you know eyewitness testimony is not that great. But the positive side of it is that you take two people, you ask them about a party they went to 10 years ago, they're very likely to tell you two different versions of it because over time our memory changes. And that's something we can tap into to say, we can work through these things, we can get new perspectives on them. And with the right people helping us, we can move through traumatic situations. So in closing, of all the research and studies you came across while writing the book, was there one that just really stood out to you? There were so many, but I think one that I think one that hit me really hard um, was what we talked about a few minutes ago, which was that the rates of depression and anxiety, how they've gone up in the last couple of years and how that's related to the risk for dementia. I think that that piece that we can think of dementia as something that we're either very worried about right now because either we're going through it or our loved one or a parent is going through it or grandparent. But if we think about our mental health right now, that impacts everybody. And if we realize that it's not just about our wellness and our how we're feeling, that's important. There's, that's as important as it gets. But how we have to prioritize it now because it's having an impact on the future and our future brain health, which we have more control over than we ever thought. Um, and so I think that was the piece of the puzzle and the linking these two things, because we didn't really have that understanding. It might sound intuitive. We didn't have the research to really tie that together. Mark, thank you so much. Thank you.